I'm Essen Zafar, and welcome to another episode of Unfair Nation, the podcast that discusses our nation's rising inequity and social, political, and economic inequality, what it means for you, and what you can do about it. Every other week, we interview one person for 25 minutes to get their perspective on structural inequality, and today, I'm joined by Dr. Anna Maria Bounds, a sociologist in New York City. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well, you're staying safe, you are socially distancing during these strange times. And as stressful as the coronavirus is for many of us, I also think it's an opportunity for us to imagine the world as a more equitable and more beautiful place. As this podcast shows us, we have a broken system of incentives and unmet needs. This isn't new. But the pandemic puts all of these issues into stark relief. Today's episode and many upcoming episodes are going to focus on how communities are responding to the pandemic. They're going to talk about how systems are working and how some systems aren't really working. And of course, we will discuss what all of you can do to get involved and to help. We continue to do this work with the hope that Unfair Nation can serve as a bit of inspiration as we start to reimagine and eventually rebuild or post-pandemic society. You can help by reviewing the podcast and subscribing on your favorite platform. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Hey, so our guest today is Dr. Anna Maria Bounds. She is an assistant professor in sociology at the Queens College at the City University of New York, She has a PhD in urban and public policy from the New School. We're going to talk a little bit about her book, in addition to preppers. We're going to talk about her book, Bracing for the Apocalypse, an ethnographic study of New York's prepper subculture. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Good morning. Yeah, appreciate it. How did you get uh, started in this area? How did you get started okay. in talking about and thinking about uh, preppers? Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I became interested in prepping really out of, you know, and taking a look at the group really out of desperation. You know, I live in uh, downtown Manhattan. I actually live in the village. And uh, I started to realize that whenever there was some type of event, whether it was uh, September 11th, Hurricane Sandy, the blackout, whatever the case was, I was always the person you know, on the short end of the stick, I was the person with the flashlight, but with no batteries or the batteries, no flashlight, um, with, uh, you know, uh, peanut butter, but no jelly, you know, or no bread or things like that. So I decided that, you know, I needed to, uh, become a grown up, grown up and, uh, find out about prepping. And, uh, there was an article in the New York times, um, about a prepping group that seemed very interesting, interesting. And I thought I would check it out both in terms of personal and professional reasons. 
um, it's interesting because I think that um, as an adult, I got kind of lazy, so to speak. Um, I grew up in the South, so I was, you know, used to needing to prepare for a hurricane, and my father was in the military. So I just kind of took that sort of uh, preparation for emergencies for granted because, you know, my father always made sure that we had everything. Um, and, uh, so I kind of took it for granted and then, you know, started to, uh, realize that, uh, I needed to rely on myself since I live in New York and my father lives in Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we've talked about prepping. What, what are, who are preppers? What is prepping? Well, one of the interesting things that I've, I've learned from um, probably maybe the more, most important thing that I've learned from my project is that uh, preppers are people who, are, who learn survival skills so that they can protect themselves and their families in a moment of disaster. Um, these people tend to be very self-reliant. You know, they're worried about um, uh, the government's inability to help, whether the government is overwhelmed by resource, uh, overwhelmed. Um, by the need to uh, overwhelm, um, unable to help, or maybe uninterested. Um, preppers are interesting because I've discovered that they've come from all walks of life, um, men and women, people of color, and that prepping is actually much more mainstream than we might expect. Um, I think that you know there's, there's some stigma associated with it, um, so people don't normally talk about it, but people are certainly doing it. There's no, you know, there's no doubt about that. There's a stereotype of preppers living in the South, being white men, and your work is in New York. So, uh, do you are you saying that that's not what what preppers are like? Yeah, let me be quite clear. Um, the one of the uh, let me be quite clear. Preppers are very different from the stereotype of the lone white hero, the lone wolf. You know, who's going to you know save the nation um, through his you know bushcraft skills. Very, very different from that. Um, preppers, particularly, I, I've studied New York preppers. I um, studied with a, um, I uh, joined a uh, uh, New York prepping group for um, two years. Um, I studied and trained with them. And, uh, you know, I had a fascinating experience in which I learned that the majority of New Yorker, uh, the majority of New York preppers are really interesting because they're not, um, they're interested in prepping because of their direct experiences, things that have happened to them. Um, many of them are first responders. Um, the idea is that they've been through certain experiences where they've learned for firsthand that, you know, government help may not be there or it may not come quickly enough. So these are individuals who have um, uh, realized that, you know, they need to better protect their family. Uh, very different, you know, uh, very different from that uh, stereotypical image of the gun-toting, you know, uh, 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 redneck um, that we see depicted in popular culture. Completely different. I don't mean to use that term in a derogatory sense, but that's the depiction that we see um, of preppers. Preppers are very different. They come from, you know, uh, um, all levels of, of income, all levels of education, all types of uh, races, all types of backgrounds. And that was what was really interesting for me in terms of working with New York preppers. New York preppers tend to be people of color. For example, the group that I studied with, the majority of individuals, the majority of members are people of color. They have a base, I think, rightly now of about 500 people. And, you know, they're, they're, when we think of the lone prepper um, stereotype that's in popular culture, um, 
the attitude with that stereotypical prepper is they're prepping, you know, they're, um, because they feel that they need to protect themselves and their ammunition because the government's coming for them. Whereas mainstream preppers and, and preppers of color prep because they think the government isn't coming for them, well, which is a completely different perspective. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. And I would argue more reality-based. Yeah. So, I mean, so f for, for those preppers that you are studying in particular, the urban preppers, the, the, the preppers of color, for them, this is kind of a stress response uh, to fulfill a need that maybe the government or other elements of society are not filling for them. Right. Yeah, I, I would argue that there's definitely a focus on self-reliability and the development of community networks, because I'd say overall, it's not just that this is a stress response. I would argue that this is, you know, uh, a change in our sense of citizenship and that we're reimagining, you know, ourselves as citizens, that we're, we're um, not um, uh, moving away from a sense of national citizenship to local, you know, to that of community. And, you know, unfortunately, at this particular moment in time, you know, um, at the, that's being reinforced, certainly at the national level, in terms of the disaster management response, reminding states that you are you, um, um, indicating to states that, you know, states are on their own, um, and that they're responsible, uh, and that they shouldn't be looking to the national government for um, disaster relief. See, another stereotype that I want to bring up um, when it comes to preppers is kind of the white male loner in the South stereotype. Another one is the extremely wealthy individual who, uh, you know, is able to segment them off themselves off from society. They have a safe room and a panic room and a yacht and they go live in their mansion, you know, somewhere out in the country. Is that a dichotomy you see with preppers as well? You know, people who respond to disasters, some are extremely wealthy and they have a different kind of response. And, and would you call them preppers? Are they both kind of in the same category? I would argue that, that the interesting thing about prepping is that there are many types of preppers and there are many different levels of, and there are different levels of prepping. So, which makes this really complex because, you know, with uh, prepping is, you know, again, in, you know, um, um, popular culture, we envision this one particular individual. When you have urban preppers, you have rural preppers, you have suburban preppers, you have um, high net worth preppers, and then you have, you know, regular middle class preppers. Um, and they all approach how they prep differently. Um, so I think that, you know, coming up with, you know, one list of, of, of qualities would be very difficult because how people prep depends on where you live, what accesses to resources you have and what experiences you have, uh, what experiences you have endured, which I think is particularly important for New York you know, because New York preppers have dealt with all sorts of things. Uh, preppers overall are, are um, uh, prepared based on scenarios such as natural disasters, terrorist attacks technological collapse, economic collapse, and also pandemics. I used to say fear of pandemics, but unfortunately I can't say that anymore. So the idea is that, you know, when you take a look at the recent history of New York, um, our city has, you know, had um, experiences with re really all of those. So, you know, for New York, it's very direct experience, very prepping is very reality-based. It's not based on, you know, this fantasy that zombies are, are suddenly going to appear and try to eat our loved ones. 
Okay, this isn't science fiction. This isn't some dystopian role playing. You know, this is this is real life for New Yorkers. Um, so I, one of the things. So I argue that now, you know, to be a New Yorker, you know, with this pandemic, it's made me realize that with New Yorkers, you know, we just can't have street smarts. We have to have survival smarts too. So you you said that you there was no kind of one pattern, and I'm exactly gonna I'm gonna ask you what the pattern is. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you, how do preppers, so if I am a middle-class person of color, what is that, what does that paint a picture for me as to what that prepping looks like? And then if I am an extremely high net worth individual, irrespective of my ethnic or racial background, paint a picture of me of, of what that prepping looks like. What am I doing well, in both cases? Well, I would argue, yeah, that there's that definitely class division is, is, uh, um, uh, well reflected in approaching to prepping in approaches to prepping um and i'd also argue that prepping you know it's another representation of class division within cities um at the um at the um higher income level um, what i call high net worth preppers and we're referring to people who are billionaires multimillionaires um those individuals approach something like sheltering in place very differently than let's say as someone of ordinary income um, a regular prepper would think about sheltering in place, meaning staying within your, you know, staying within your apartment, making sure that you have all the supplies and resources that you need for a set number of days. Whereas a high net worth prepper would not only, you know, make sure that they have proper provisions, instead, um, um, they would have a safe room um, within their apart within their apartment or within their, you know, within their home. Um, many of these safe rooms function as dual purpose rooms, meaning that you could be in a wealthy person's, let's say, living room, their media room, their bedroom, without realizing that um, uh, it actually um, uh, uh, could actually quickly transform into a safe room. You also have um, high net worth preppers um, if they don't choose to shelter in place, you know, leaving uh, the city for remote destinations, places, you know, strategic, what, what are called prepping lingo, strategic relocation sites, um, places that, you know, that they already have homes and exotic destinations or places far away from the city where they already have provisions and, you know, where they already have a home stock with staff ready to go. It's the stuff um, you see these, in the movies, so you, you know. Yeah, what's well, yeah, and it, and, yeah. And, it, and it's yeah, it's certainly you know we can say you know you know that that, that this sounds uh, very far fetched for you know people of of ordinary income, but it's very different for high net worth preppers. What you have to understand is they're much more familiar with risk management, um, you know, than um, um, uh, let's say preppers of ordinary income. In other words, they're used to protecting investments. They're, um, they're used to, you know, uh, uh, planning and, and thinking about um, uh, the, ne- the necessities for protection and putting plans in, pl- in place. Um, so this is just a logic that carries, you know, that carries forth, you know, for, you know, for the wealthy, you know, in terms of um, bugging out, you know, once someone decides that to, to leave for, you know, their second home, you know, they're not concerned about the traffic you know, and trying to get out of the city. You know, they're flying by, you know, a helicopter, private plane. And when they're leaving, they're not just leaving with, you know, a bug out bag that they put together with materials from, you know, a, a local, let's say, sporting goods store or um, something that, you know, products or things that they've ordered online. Um, you know, they're carrying curated bags, bags that have been made for them and, and for their particular interest. Um, so, you know, their approach is, is completely different. Same concerns 
okay, but the pro- approach is completely different where you have preppers with ordinary means, regardless of, you know, regardless of color, focusing on sheltering in place, as I've already said, living, you know, um, um, making do within their apartment, um, or you have um, uh, people leaving by car if they have it, or public transportation, if they have advanced notice. Um, and if they don't have any advance notice, you have uh, regular preppers um, realizing that their best bet may be to walk out of the city. So you have, you know, f- um, groups of preppers practicing how to do that with their backpack, not just practicing by themselves, but practicing with their families, you know, just, discuss- you know, um, plotting um, um um, routes and in safe locations outside of the city. You know whether it's it's a a, a more modest second home that they may or a, a home that they may have, um, or you know a safe location, or they may think that they just have to hit the road and once they're out of the city, they'll figure out where they're going to go. You know normally people have made arrangements for family and friends, but the idea is you know their approach to leaving you know is 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 fundamentally. You know, their approach to how, how they survive is, is fundamentally different from um, high net worth preppers, which would make sense because when you take a look at class divisions, not just within the city, but within the country, you see, you know, you know very wealthy individuals opting out of, um, uh, in some cases, opting out of, we'll say, the collective experience in terms of things like public education, you know, um, opting out of public education opting out of, you know, health insurance, um, um, opting, uh, you know, turning away from all, from all sorts of, of, of uh, collective experiences. Um, there was, the, I, I would argue that the way that high net worth prep, that, that what distinguishes high net worth preppers from regular preppers is the way that they know the world. So, you know, with COVID They're happening. Completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and to that point with COVID happening right now, you know, all over the world, uh, there's been a lot of reporting and allegations that COVID and the responses to COVID have exacerbated these divisions and kind of this dichotomy. I mean, do you, uh, do you agree? And then kind of my oh, yeah, related absolutely. question. Absolutely. When, you know, when, um, when you and I spoke earlier, you know, the word was, the, um, it, it was interesting. I, I thought about our discussion and how the phrase allegations were used, um, that, you know, uh, that COVID has, uh, mag- has, um, you know, exposed, uh, the split between classes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not an allegation. I had argued it's fact. Um, we see, you know, particularly, you know, within Queens, we see the, you know, the, 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 um, um, inequality in cities we see, um, you know, COVID is multiplied and, you know, magnified already existing problems. Um, for example, in the case of Central Queens, which is really the epicenter of the epicenter here in New York, um, we have um, um, immigrant populations. We have people living in poverty who are really experiencing um, um, uh, uh, COVID and in a much more horrific way than others might imagine, given their types of jobs that they're involved in, you know, manual labor, they're, you know, that they're day laborers, that they're involved in the restaurant industry, that, that, um, um, they're involved in all sorts of jobs that, um, require direct contact with a lot of people, um, on a daily basis. You know, these individuals were, uh, far more quickly and easier ex- exposed to the virus. Unfortunately, you know, these particular jobs, you know, these low paying jobs um, didn't um, allow this group 
the ability to secure provisions. Once it was clear that, you know, this, that this disaster, that this virus was really going to, to, to be destructive. You know, these were people who basically had more contact with people who make less money and were unable to, you know, buy the things that they needed to protect their family, whether it was masks, gloves, to have the proper amount of food, um, and so on. These are also individuals who, you know, the healthcare ex- experience is very different from them. These are individuals who don't have health insurance, who wait until they're, you know, unfortunately have to wait until they're very ill to go to the doctor so they don't have a regular family physician. They have, um, you know, th- their, their first trip to the doctor is the emergency room, and that option wasn't available. These groups are all, you know, um, these groups are all also, um, so not only were they, so, so they had a significant lack of economic resources, lack of access to health care, um, job instability, job loss, weaker social networks, and also a lack of ex- access to technology, um, which has a pro- profound impact on everything. Like for example, in, you know, in these neighborhoods, um, like for example, many, many libraries, um, um, Queens libraries are extremely popular. They're well used, not just for, you know, renting books and, you know, and other types of entertainment, but um, they're also um, frequented because they provide computer access, uh, access to high speed um, um, technology. So the, so that was a resource that was unavailable to people. Um, so you have students struggling, you know, public school kids, kid, my own students at Queens College. Um, certainly, you know, struggling with a lack of, uh, of, of access to high-speed internet and also, a, you know, a proper computer to use at home. Um, you know, not just in terms of education, but, you know, that affects your, your ability to apply for unemployment. You know, your ability to have access to, you know, the, the economic supplement, you know, that's been, pro- been provided by the federal government. So, you know, these people, I don't even know if the word magnifying the problem is is enough, you know, is, you know, they're in, um, they're in dire straits. And, and I'm sorry. So I just, yeah, I, I just need to, to just to pause for a moment because, you know, for me, yeah, you know, I live in the village, you know, I, I live in Manhattan, but, you know, I teach in Queens and I have, um, you know, you know, certainly, um, you know, um, you know, a, a few friends, um, who live in the central Queens area. And, um, the way that they're experiencing the world right now, you know, is, you know, you know, completely different. Yeah. You know, just on a personal note, I, I'm completely with you on that because I have students who are experiencing some of the same issues. I've had students who've lost their family members to COVID, um, uh, you know, and so I'm not in the thick of it as, as like you are in New York. Um, uh, but, but I completely empathize and sympathize with your situation. I can't imagine how challenging it must be for you and especially how challenging it must be for, you know, your students and your friends. One thing I did want to pick out of that is you mentioned women. When we're talking about preparing for a disaster like a pandemic, are the responses of women different from from how men respond or, or are they similar? Um, I, I've discovered as, as, as a result of my study that they're actually quite different, and that's going to be in my next piece of research. 
um, when we take a look at, at the, I would argue that definitely how people prepare is uh, uh, informed by gender, without a doubt. Like, for example, um, uh, how preppers train. Um, um, women, in addition to learning bushcraft skills, learning how to shelter in place, and all of those things also do additional things. Also, sometimes they take self-defense courses, um, you know, because they're concerned um, that, um, you know, they might be attacked, not just for their um, uh, equipment, supplies, resources, but also, you know, might be, you know, uh, might be sexually assaulted. So you first have women, you know, uh, taking self-defense courses as part of preparedness. And that was, you know, a, a, a very interesting experience. You know, I, I took um, a, a, a couple of self-defense classes to see, you know, what that, you know, to see what that was like. And it was definitely, you know, an eye-opener in terms of this being a, a real concern um, um, for women. Women also tend to um, um, uh, pack different equipment. Like, for example, women um, um, not only sometimes tend to... Um, pack equipment, not just for themselves, but, you know, items for their family as well. Um, but they also do things like um, think, think, uh, pack, uh, birth, uh, pack um, supplies for safe sex and also for pregnancy prevention. Um, whereas, you know, when, when, so when I inspected the, um, I had a chance to take a look at the bug out bags for men, you know, it was primarily, well, you know, what you would expect when you take a look at a normal pack, you know, the kind of gear and provisions that they would supply. They never carried anything involving, you know, um, uh, the possibility of having sex. There, you know, no one ever had any condoms. No one ever addressed that at any of the, you know, lectures or, or lectures, meetings, outings or books that I've read on prepping. So you, Women talk about this kind of issue all the time, you know, in terms of thinking about different things that they that, that, that they could pack, you know, in terms of, you know, condoms and let's say plan B. Um, um, uh, so, so uh, you know, they're the only people talking and, and thinking about it. Um, and it's definitely, you know, really a concern. Another interesting point was um, uh, some of the women, um, when we would go on outing, the way that they would prepare, the way that they would train would be that um, they, even if they were by themselves, they would train in, in, in when I say train, you know, do things like um, set up um, um, a large tent or a teepee um, and learn how to arrange everything best for their family, not for themselves, not what worked for them, but what worked for their family, which I thought was particularly extraordinary. And I had, I, and, and I spoke with one woman who, you know, uh, who is from the moment she got there and tell them, oh, why don't I say spoke with? But, you know, I watched her, you know, on outings. And usually, you know, she was always busy working, testing items because she saw it, uh, saw her role as a primary care provider and her family to also be the primary care provider during an emergency situation. So, you know, that was, you know, quite fascinating. In terms of sheltering in place, women also tend to um, think about other people, people beyond their family. You know, the idea that, you know, they have to have more, they have to be better prepared, or they have to make space, because chances are, you know, they're going to have an extended family member come stay with them, or they're going to need to think about their neighbors, you know, all sorts of things. So I would argue that it's much more um, um, uh, 
community-oriented sense of, of prepping. And it also, you know, is addressing the reality that in order for people to survive, that we're really going to have to focus on community. So I think that they're taking their role as, as caregiver very seriously and and uh, um, in their preparedness. There's an element of kind of socialization, right? And that that's kind of playing a role in all this as well? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, absolutely. And again, this was an interesting finding that I've had from this particular, you know, particular um, study. Um, and, and I'm and now this is going to be, you know, this is what I'm segueing into. This is, a, you know, so it's early days, you know, with, with this portion, portion of, of my research. But there are, de- you know, socialization definitely does, you know, definitely does, pl- does play a role. How does somebody get involved in this community, right? Uh, especially... Uh, because prepping is seen as a positive, especially for lower income or middle income folks, a positive response to a lack of resources when it comes to disasters. How would somebody get involved in the prepping community? Let's say even in New York, which is the epicenter of the of the COVID crisis. Right. Okay. Well, I, the interesting thing about, you know, about, about prepping and we've been, you know, focused right now mainly on, you know, responses to COVID and taking a look at, you know, prepping in terms of disaster management, but prepping as a, as a, um, uh, practice is interesting because it's not just based on survival. Preppers tend to be interested in sustainability and homesteading. So, you know, there, there, there are lots of ways mm. to, you know, to, to get into prepping specifically in New York. There, there, um, um, uh, there is a uh, uh, the group that that I worked with, um, um, and actually that, that 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 I'm a part of, and that you know I support is uh, the New York City Preppers Network. They are terrific in providing um, serving as an information resource for individuals interested in prepping. Um, they have um, members who are um, new at the beginning level. I will say at the beginner level, all the way to seasoned preppers. They host a variety of events. Um, and of course, they're doing you know Zoom meetings now, where they have simple um, uh, question and answer sessions, you know, to uh, lectures focused on specific activities, to beginner outings, to um, um, uh, tough excursions, a whole range of of activities, of lectures, activities, and events for for, for people to participate in. You know, they're also now. Um, um, so I think that. Uh, it would. Uh, I'm trying to recall um, uh, the leader of the program. His name is Jason Charles, and I'm trying to. And, and his argument is that he's interested that all New Yorkers need to learn about preparedness. That you know, and, and he sees the the group's mission as kind of a, a, a to, you know to educate New Yorkers about these in, these important skills because it's something that we all need to know. You know, with increasing uh, climate change, with, you know, with um, terrorist attacks, with, you know, all the, you know, all the things that New York has been through, we'll say in the past 10 years. I mean, it's clear that we all need to to develop at least some level of understanding of it. Um, Like, for example, for for me, um, when it looked like the virus was really going to, you know, hit the U.S. and, and, you know, my understanding, you know, or, and with my research, I'm well aware of, you know, the, the, the potential um, for a pandemic, given that we're a gateway city, 
you know, so this really wasn't, you know, I don't want to say, you know, news to me, but, you know, my research had, had, you know, reminded me of the significance of New York being a global city, that we have a tremendous amount of individuals, of New Yorkers who, you know, travel internationally for business. We also have, you know, um, international visitors, um, you know, all sorts of people, you know, we're, we're a global gateway. And with that, you know, there definitely, uh, you know, there was definitely, we, were, we are definitely at risk for, you know, events such as uh, disasters, such as pandemics. So with that, so, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, this group, you know, provides information about how to prepare for all sorts of scenarios. So one of the, so when uh, it looked like the, uh, the virus was definitely going to, you know, hit the U.S., um, one of the things that I did was, you know, j- just as being a New Yorker, you know, was I you know, looked at my bug out bag to see the kind of supplies that I had. And, you know, fortunately, you know, I, we already had the N95 masks. We ended up ordering, you know, two extra. Um, but, you know, the idea is that we were already prepared. Um, the advice that uh, 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 preppers are the perspective that preppers had at the start of the virus was, you know, that they kind of, they, that they took it at stride, you know, that they all good, okay, this is something that, you know, we've trained for, this is something, you know, we're, you know, we're well stocked, we have what we need. So right now, we need to think about educating our neighbors and helping our neighbors, because we're already ready. Let's see what we can do to help other people. And I really think that's an important, I really think that that's an important point, you know, that's, 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 that's missed in this whole discussion um, about preppers and, you know, people not thinking past the stereotype, that they're actually really community oriented. You know, um, um, preppers within the network have, or excuse me, preppers within this group have, you know, formed a network for exchanging information and resources. You know, they're, they're, they're um, those who live in apartment buildings, you know, are helping individuals prepare um, you know, um, um, in their communities and in their neighborhoods. This isn't uh, about being alone. Yeah, a couple of the phrases that I think uh, in my research that I've seen them mention, one is um, that they're trying to, you know, get, a prepper is trying to get a new initiate, I guess for lack of a better word, prepared to be comfortable in their right. discomfort. Right. Yes, one of one of my um, one of my um, one um, um, uh, one of the preppers that I worked with had an out um, had an outstanding you know phrase, and he argued that the importance was of, of prepping of you know learning you know um, learning survival skills was to get you comfortable and your discomfort. The idea that this that if you were trained, if you had a certain level of experience, a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of preparation, that things wouldn't be so frightening, that you would be past that point and you would know that you had some level of, of self-reliance, some level of, of control and ability to help yourself and your family. His argument was that you know, getting comfortable in your own discomfort means that you're thinking carefully about what your family needs. The phrase that I would use is, um, that you're thinking about your family's needs, how you function on a daily basis, what items that you need for your survival, and also for your comfort. Um, the phrase that I would say is that you're not just stocking up, but you're taking stock. Oh, nice. Right? I like that one. I mean, another yeah, phrase true. that I saw that was related was uh, two is one, uh, one is yes. none. Yes, yes, and this is and this is the, the same prepper who is who is um, an amazing um, uh, an amazing person. His name is Marlon, and he's also um, um, uh, now leading a, a, a group um, in New Jersey that's called 
urban, um, uh, urban and outdoor survival. And uh, he would always say, when it came to, you know, provisions, you know, even things that you would carry, let's say, in your backpack on a, you know, daily basis. Two is one, one is none. And, you know, it, and the idea that, you know, you might not only need extra for yourself, but you also might have, you know, uh, you might need someone who is in need, which I think it was, which is, is particularly important. And again, speaks to the perspective that, uh, you know, preppers, you know, aren't just individual, you know, aren't just individuals um, who are focusing just on themselves or on their families. That this is a much wider, you know, a much much wider network. Are there some preppers who are who are isolationists? Yeah, absolutely. Are um, are there some preppers who you know are definitely gut, you know gun proponents? Absolutely. But you know, one of the interesting things about the group that I studied here in New York um, was that uh, during meetings they had a strict um, rule against discussing politics. Um, and the idea was that you focus on prepping and only prepping and that you leave your political perspective, whatever that may be, out, you know, outside of the door. But you would argue that, of course, some of the, you know, these individuals tend to be what would tend to be more conservative, you know, just based on you know, their interest in self-reliance at the start. How did you how did you get to, to spend time with these guys? It looks like you spend a lot of time with different communities of preppers, especially in New York, where you prepping with them? Were you? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. This is an ethnographic project. This was, you know, let me be, you know, let me, you know, you know, be, you know, be very clear. You know, the the work that they do is very serious and they deserve a tremendous amount of respect. So, you know, not just based on my own interest in someone, as I've said, who, you know, has, you know, been in, you know, who unfortunately, you know, has been at a disadvantage, you know, in disasters in New York. Um, you know, as, as an ethnographer, I also understand the importance of participant observation, you know, which means that if I really, really need, wanted to understand the how and why of, um, uh, of prepping in New York, um, I needed to go out and do it. I needed mm-hmm. to learn it for myself and also to learn it as a sociologist to understand what the experience would be like. Right. So, um, and sleeping outside in, you know, the freezing rain, you know, it, you know, even if you're in a tent, you know, the freezing rain, uh, you know, a great experience. No, it's carrying, you know, a backpack, you know, on a long hike that has the supplies that you need to survive. Um, pleasant? No. Um, being on your own for, you know, uh, you know, for, for two or three days. And when I say being on your own, um, trying to survive, you know, out of everything that you've carried with you and not have to use anything else just on what you have in your pack. That's no easy thing. Learning how to build fire without a match. Yeah. All of those. Yeah. All of those sorts of skills. This is, this is, this is, this is, uh, you know, the, the excursions, you know, are, are, are tough, you know, are tough with, with, without a doubt. And, you know, it is, it's very challenging for me because, you know, I'm um, a bit of a girly girl. You know, I'm the person right now who's having a crisis because, you know, I haven't been to the hair salon <laughs> in the past. Well, you're not the only half. one having that crisis. Yeah, I'm growing. not. I'm not. But, you know, but, you know, the idea of, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not alone. But the idea is, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I, I, when I started this project, I wasn't that, you know, that Eagle Scout girl, or, you know, a Girl Scout sort sure. of person. Right. You know, and so I had to go out and I had to learn it. Did I cry sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Did I let anyone know? No. 
<laughs> Did you become comfortable in your like, discomfort? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I finally, you know what? He's right. I, you know, I, you know, I finally, you know, I finally got, you know, I, I, I finally got past it. And you know, when there was, you know, there was certainly, you know, a payoff because, you know, when, you know, COVID, you know, when, you know, when the virus hit, I was like, okay, you know what? We're we're all right. It's time, you know, for for me, you know, to to take a look at, you know, figuring out how to help other people. You know, I could direct more attention on, you know, more attention on that. So, you know, given your experience with with preppers and seeing how they respond or prepare for disasters, I, mean, I, I empathize, to be honest with you personally, because I was a refugee to this country. I went through a war. So I, I have a lot of personal resonance with preparing for disasters. I, I do my, you know, I'm not a prepper, so to speak, in, in the in the way that you've, you've studied these individuals. But, you know, I, I prep in my own way. I have priorities in my life that are as a result of my, uh, you know, experiences as a child. Um, but to that point, you know, this the, the prepping community that you've studied is, is relatively small. Let's say the New York Preppers Network, I think, is you know, around four or 500 folks. How do we make that as a, how, how do we take what they have created and make that maybe a, a community citywide model or maybe a model that can be integrated into government services to make it a more effective government response uh, to disasters? Well, that, that's, yeah, that's, that's an important component. And that's definitely one of, you know, that's definitely um um, the next, uh, actually, I'm working on a conference paper on that right now. And the reason, it, because one of the components that I think of that is missing in, you know, in, in disaster management, and we, um, is the idea of trying to uh, develop the, it's, it's one thing that's missing from disaster management is the idea of, of trying to figure out how we can develop and then rely on the community resilience which is something that we're seeing that's very important to New York's success. The idea that um, we have communities, you know, coming together. Like, for example, you know, we have apartment buildings um, forming network, you know, um, uh, 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 residents of apartment buildings, creating Facebook pages um, and, uh, um, um, and, and uh, uh, coordinating responsibilities to take a, to look after, let's say, the elderly within their buildings to exchange resources, to check on one another, you know, to foster a sense of community, to figure out, you know, what resources they have and how they can best apply them to help their community. Um, you also have, um, you know, you also have individuals um, doing things like uh, um, uh, taking a look at resources that their institutions have and trying to figure out how to reconfigure those to help um, to help the community. For example, the art department at Queens College. Um, some of the professors there are using the 3D printers to make protective masks. Um, for the healthcare workers, um, a professor in our department of sociology has um, a group that sews masks for the Elmhurst Hospital in Queens. Um, the idea of, of trying to look at um, how, because we're at the local level, how quickly we can respond. Um, in a, a very unusual example, um, um, which has really set me to thinking was information that um, uh, that I learned about Hurricane Sandy. Um, I had an interview with uh, a former uh, former gang member who um, explained that during Hurricane Sandy, his neighborhood um, 
all pooled together, meaning that um, uh, basically he argued a, 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 a group of, of group of gangs within the area decided that they were going to call a truce, what he referred to as drop color, or colors, I think is, is the phrase that he used, and work together to figure out how they could get goods, important supplies, food and water in and out of their neighborhood. And so what happened was the, uh, the gang, um, uh, the gang leaders had basically, uh, held council, had, had a meeting in which they, um, worked out a plan to try to help their, you know, try to help their large community. And what that meant was the individuals, they divided tasks. In the gang that had the most number of trucking uh, trucking uh, licenses um, uh, was the group that was responsible for transportation, bringing in supplies in and out of the neighborhood. Other gangs were responsible for distributing those supplies, and it's my understanding that well, important coordinators within that you know were were, were um, women within the neighborhood who could basically take stock and figure out what families needed. Now that's a fascinating way of thinking about, you know, uh, thinking about uh, community resilience. The Preppers Network, let's say the New York Preppers Network, this example you've talked about, gangs, seems to be so much more effective than other responses to COVID, where you know many levels of government have kind of fallen flat, um, and people are anxious, scared. Um, I imagine that people listening to this. Uh, especially after the disaster, after the COVID disaster, will flock to or will want to join the New York Preppers Network. Is that something that's open to folks? Oh, it's ab- yeah, it's 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 it's, it's absolutely open. Um, you can find the group on, uh, the group on Meetup. So, when thinking about what people can do now in response to COVID, you can certainly um, the, uh, keep in mind uh, the best advice is to stick to the game plan. You know, to think about what we've already been doing that works. Engaging in good hygiene practices, social distancing, sheltering in place, and being a good member, uh, being a good neighbor. I think those are all important ideas that you know that that um, are not just advocated by the government, but those are things that preppers are actually engage are actually engaged. Uh, the things that preppers agree with too. Now, in terms of if you're interested in joining a prepping group, um, certainly um, you can reach out to uh, New York City Preppers Network, which is on Meetup. Um, um, under, uh, and with the understanding that you don't need to attend meetings in person. Of course, they're not doing that. There's a lot of them. They're now holding, um, online meetings. And there's also a tremendous amount of information available about prepping. Um, uh, you can, uh, you know, there, I think are currently a million books now on Amazon. Um, I would also, um, encourage you to take a look at information about sheltering in place. The idea of how to prepare something called a prepper's closet. Keep, think again carefully, not about the idea of hoarding, but about things that your family enjoys. Remember the phrase, not just take, not just stocking up, but taking stock. Think about, you know, organizing not just a prepper's closet, but organizing your household um, to improve the workflow, setting up stations for work, setting up stations for school, setting up, you know, recreational areas. It may involve moving around your furniture. It may involve a little bit of decluttering. But, you know, anything to make things more manageable um, The in terms of, of the idea that now we're all turning to online meetings. Um, Priya Parker, the author of um, The Art of Gathering, had some wonderful advice. She said that right now we need to think about meaningful connections. We don't just need to think about gathering, but we need to think about 
why we're gathering. We think we need to think about um, the importance of why we get together as a community, what the group needs at that particular time, not just why we're supposed to be getting together, which I think is um, which I think is particularly important. So there are a lot of resources available and that you can do this within your own expense. This isn't something that, you know, is going to be extremely expensive. Right now, I think all New Yorkers are preppers. Uh, that, that's uh, excellent advice and, uh, you know, absolutely true. I think this is this crisis is going to turn a lot of folks into preppers. And knowing that prepping doesn't have to be an endeavor that requires hundreds of thousands of dollars or extreme wealth, I think is important. I think that's our conversation today, hopefully, is kind of breaking that stereotype about um, preppers, who they are, and um, and also, you know, taking away the kind of uh, uh, derogatory nature, uh, you know, that pe- sometimes people associate with prepping. So, Anna, I know you have a book coming out. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? And and I also know that you got a grant. So congratulations on that on that grant. Uh, th- yes, yeah, well. th- thank you, thank you so much. Uh, my book is called Bracing for the Apocalypse: An Ethnographic Study of New York's Prepper Subculture. Um, it um, uh, basically takes a look at the how and why of New York prepper uh, of uh, the how and why the backstory of why New York prep why New Yorkers focus not just on street smarts, but on survival smarts as well. Um, I take a look at it, you know, from an ethnographic perspective, you know, basically my spending two years with a group learning, you know, learning how to prep and learning how to um, figure out uh, uh, my life as a New Yorker in this new context. Excellent. It'll be, yeah, so perfect. So thanks. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. We'll link to the book in our show notes. We'll also uh, provide a link to the New York uh, preppers network so people can learn more and maybe join them you mentioned some community facebook pages we'll also link to those as well anna thanks again for taking the time to join us on unfair nation i really appreciate it everything you've said is so relevant and so important and uh you know we'll look forward to maybe getting you on for a follow-up episode um, specifically talking about some of the the papers that you're working on next thanks again Thank you so much. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Unfair Nation. If you're sitting at home and bored, socially distancing, I have something you can do. Subscribe to our podcast and rate it, review it on the Apple Podcast app or your favorite podcast service. Our next few episodes continue to focus on the coronavirus We have Dr. Errol Southers, who will talk about the virus of hate and how we can combat stereotyping related to the coronavirus. Also, have you ever wondered how those select few people at Disneyland can cut the line? Sometimes they even move past the fast pass lane. Nelson Schwartz, who's the author of The Velvet Rope Economy, joins us in May, and he's going to talk about the rise of exclusivity in entertainment, sports, and just about any other industry. Thanks again for tuning in.